any time watching dramatic movies or television, you, you start developing a sort of sixth sense about how things are going to turn out, right? In particular, you kind of know well before it, it plays out if something bad is going to happen <laughs> to one of the characters, right? When you develop that sixth sense, and when you are right about what you anticipated would happen, you find a bit of satisfaction in announcing, I saw that coming. And in Jude 14 to 16, Jude again saw it coming. That judgment will land upon the false teachers that had infiltrated this church to which he was writing. This time, he indicated how he knew this condemnation was on its way for them because of a prophecy that had been handed down from ages past. Not only did God reveal long ago that he would judge ungodliness, but the false teachers whom Jude addressed demonstrated that they measured up well to the standards of ungodliness that God had promised to condemn. Throughout this letter, Jude has exhorted the church uh, to which he wrote to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints because some ungodly people have crept into the church and begun to distort grace and reject Christ, lead people away from Jesus. And this letter is then about persevering in the truth of the faith. And the reason that Jude found it necessary to admonish this church to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints is because ungodly people who were predestined for condemnation, and that's important today, who were predestined for condemnation had infiltrated this church this is really clear in verse three and four if if we can read those together beloved although i was very eager to write to you about our common salvation transitioning to what he's going to do i found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints for because so so the reason that he needed to change course from his original purpose to, to his new intention of exhortation is that certain people have crept in unnoticed. Who are these people? They are people who long ago were designated condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and reject our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. In this opening statement, Jude then already indicated that he saw the false teacher's condemnation coming. He saw it coming. He knew that they were long ago designated for condemnation, destined for destruction. In respect to our verses today, verse 14 to 16, this particular claim about the heretic's foreordination to destruction, uh, this claim in verse 4, is the context for Jude's citation of, of this prophecy about 
the Lord's coming for judgment. So, having thoroughly demonstrated in in the verses we've already considered the problems with the false teachers as they relied on claims to personal revelation rather than relying upon God's Word and having announced the curse of woe is coming upon them for working for their own gain rather than for the provision for God's people. Now, Jude grounded his claim that these teachers were destined for destruction in a prophecy from Enoch that showed the fate of those who behaved as these false teachers did. The main point is that God protects his people by judging those who would lead them astray. God protects his people by judging those who would lead them astray. Our first point is an age-old problem. An age-old problem. Uh, Jude has, if you've been with us in this series, you know, but I hope even in, in reading it, you can gather very easily that Jude has repeatedly used examples from the Old Testament to establish the pattern of what will happen to these false teachers because of their ungodly leadership in this church. He has shown what is in store for these false teachers, but by interpreting Scripture and looking to, to and using a, a type of interpretation that we call types. Types. A type is something that happens or a figure that appears in the Old Testament that foreshadows and points forward to something that happens in the New Testament. So, for example, right, to make that a little bit more concrete, for example, David was a shepherd. When when Samuel found him, he was tending the sheep. David was a shepherd who was coronated king at Bethlehem, which establishes a pattern that points forward to Christ as the great shepherd king who was born in Bethlehem. So God appointed an Old Testament shepherd king to teach us about Christ as the ultimate shepherd king. And that is one example of a type. Jude repeatedly appealed to Old Testament figures and and some events as patterns of what the false teachers in this church were like. People like Unbelieving Israelites, verse 5, rebellious angels, Sodom, Cain, Balaam, Korah. These were types, exemplary patterns set in place to teach Christians about what false teachers are like. These things were written down for our instruction, as Paul will tell us in 1 Corinthians 10. Now, okay, that stuff about typology uh, might seem a bit theoretical, but... But it teaches us an important point. False teachers, deception, and heresy have always been a problem for God's people. That may seem obvious. (laughs) Yes, why are you even telling me that? But it has an important implication 
Christians so often worry that the church is in worse shape than ever. We so often worry that whatever problem we have may spell the end of the church. Maybe the problem is a lack of biblical preaching. Maybe it's corrupted worship. Maybe it's distorted doctrines. Whatever the case and whatever concerns us, Jude shows us that the problem is not a new one. It has always been with God's people. And because the church is still here, God's people still carry on. There are reasons for assurance and confidence built directly into the observation that this has always been our problem. And so within this context of Old Testament types of these false teachers, Jude then appealed to a prophecy about them. So read Jude verses 14 and 15 with me, which says, it was also about these, talking about the false teachers, it was also about these people that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, there are a few issues here. And so we're going to take a few minutes to unpack some of this. So the first thing, uh, the, the very obvious thing to point out, but has some relevance, is that the prophet who spoke this was Enoch, who was listed uh, in the line of Seth, which we read in Genesis 5. Jude records that he was seventh from Adam. And just to give you the significance, I mean, it, there's a question. Why is that there, I think? And, and it's a natural question. And I believe that he's putting that there for us to distinguish simply. It's very simple, actually. He's, he's trying to distinguish this Enoch from Cain's son, who was also named Enoch. Uh, in Genesis 4. So he's just telling us which Enoch he means. Uh, Seth's line, but the significance of that is that Seth's line was the line of promise. So Jude is appealing to someone within the legacy of God's people. Genesis 5.24 says, Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. So we see in that passage, and, and it was very clearly repeated when we read it, that Enoch was obviously a believer. He walked with God. But in contrast to the repeated ending, typical of the Genesis 5 genealogy, that, that he died, and he died, in contrast to that, God took Enoch. Which likely indicates that he did not die, but was brought directly into heaven. And that's the fairly traditional understanding of what happened there. Enoch, who walked slow, so, this Enoch, who walked so closely with God that he was translated into heaven without going through death, 
made a prophecy. And Jude cited it. The second, the difficult issue is that this prophecy is not recorded in our Old Testament, but is included in the intertestamental book called First Enoch. The first question is, what does that mean for our doctrine of Scripture? It means very simple. As we've highlighted already when Jude cited a, a different unexpected book, perhaps from our perspective, it, it means that Scripture is still the only inspired text. But as Scripture itself tells us throughout, there were prophets doing and saying things that the Scripture itself doesn't record. The Scripture itself regularly reports that there were prophets active on whom it does not focus. John, the Gospel of John, tells us that Jesus did many things which he did not write down. The accounts of First and Second Kings regularly refer readers to the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel or Judah as writings that include true, although uninspired, material. So, the Scripture itself testifies that God empowered His people, even prophets, to do things that He did not leave us an inspired account of in the Scripture. So, it tells us that some other book wrote down a thing that is true. And God's Word is the only inspired text we still have. That's what it means for our doctrine of Scripture. In this case, one of the prophecies that God spoke was admittedly somehow (laughs) preserved through other means than the inspired Scripture. So, citing 1 Enoch Chapter 1, verse 9, uh, it does not mean that Jude thought the whole book of First Enoch was inspired. It just means that he knew at least one of the prophecies recorded in the book of First Enoch was true. It's not a holistic endorsement. The book was well regarded uh, and respected in, in the New Testament period by Christians We have extra sensitivities to this in light of our conflicts with Rome. There's no problem in saying that these books might include helpful things, interesting things, but they're not inspired Scripture. Third and finally, the the last thing to, to think about just about the use of this prophecy is Jude's use of this ancient prophecy about the Lord's judgment upon false teachers, most pointedly again, just reminds us that heresy has always been a problem and God has always planned to address it. We, we do, we're going to devote our next point uh, to that issue more at length. So for now, let's just mark that this text shows us that the, that the age-old problem is that false teachers have always plagued God's people. And that brings us to our second point. God has always addressed the problem. 
It's always been a problem, and God has always addressed the problem. And there is a twofold payoff from Jude's citation of Enoch's prophecy. Here, we uh, have already considered how this problem has always been present for the church. There are two further things that we can say about that, though. So first, the examples leading up to this citation, Earl of Jude, demonstrate how God's people have always had to deal with this issue. And we've emphasized that. When Jude reached for Cain, the example from Genesis 4, as a type of the same issue, he showed how, how this same problem that he is highlighting for this church was live and active since right after the fall. It's just been the issue we've had to face. So, in light of that, we need to real, be, be realistic about a few things. Right? We need to realize that there was no period in history in which God's people were safe from this particular danger. There was, since the advent of sin, the infiltration of those who would destroy God's people if they could. There was never a golden age when God's people had it together and entirely protected ourselves from the threat of heresy. I think that's something we really need to reckon with. As we say, things are worse than they ever have been. Look, I've spent probably too much time reading old books by theologians, and not one of them has ever said, we've got it together. If we can just keep doing this, It'll be okay. The refrain has been, through the centuries, things are really bad. It's worse than ever. And so, the question is, is it worse than ever? Or have we always just had significant problems? From Adam's crash to Christ's consummation, there have always been those trying to sit under the eaves of the church, if not sit at the head of the table, with godless purposes in their hearts. And this has just demonstrably been a problem that we have always faced. And it can be very easy for us to to worry about the state of the church when we look at God's people holistically. But worry should not be our stance. And it should not be our stance precisely, well, precisely because of the next thing we consider about that prophecy that Jude quotes. But also, what if we take Jesus seriously that the gates of hell will never prevail against the church? What if he meant that? And we can trust it. And so we don't have to worry doesn't mean we don't do things. It doesn't mean we're not proactive. It doesn't mean we don't address problems. It means we trust Christ. So second, though, as we follow up on that, God has always addressed this problem and will continue to do so. The, the previous types or examples that Jude produced all showed... Uh, that God had destroyed the false teachers and rebels that hid 
on God's people. Jude brings out, I mean, you see that, right? There, there were unbelievers in Israel. There, there was Cain in Adam's family. Right? There was Korah's rebellion in the people of Israel. God had always destroyed false teachers that hid among God's people. Jude brings out Enoch's prophecy. And he says that this prophecy is about these very false teachers that they faced. Now, that should put this church in the, to whom Jude wrote in a fairly strong position of confidence, I would think, knowing that God Himself had spoken concerning how He would bring judgment upon the teachers that afflicted them. Notice that Jude said it is about these. His his constant way of referring to the teachers. These people. About these. Meaning those teachers that Enoch prophesied about. Now, the thing is, you may think that that shifts application away from our situation. But, look at the verse and notice the timing of the final execution of this prophecy. It happens when the Lord comes with ten thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment on all. The prophecy is about these teachers, and yet the prophecy includes when Christ returns and judgment happens on all. So even though this prophecy was about these false teachers, the fact that judgment is yet to come means that all the false teachers and all those who rebel against God in rejection of Christ in or outside of the church are together destined for destruction. All who commit treason against, all who commit treason against God are swept into this same coming judgment. God will execute judgment too. And so shows how He has always addressed this same issue. And so we come to our last point. A completed rescue. A completed rescue. I think the problem trailing out of the previous point is that we've all committed treason against God. There's not a single one of us who has not offended our Maker by our sin. We are all rebels against the God of the universe, like the treacherous Israelites, like the fallen angels, like Korah's followers, and like even these false teachers. And that means that God should be coming in judgment for all of us. 
when we consider the description of these false teachers in verse 16, we see how plainly it indicts every single one of us. Take account of it. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They're loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. How many of us drift into complaining about our work or our life situation more generally? Into resenting the blessings that we have? Drift into justifying the ways that we long for sinful things? It's okay, it's not that bad. Certainly not as bad as that guy. I'm fine. How many of us fall into pride? Or kiss up to those who can promote our personal standing and prestige? This list, as the, which states the reason that God will judge the false teachers, that's what it is. Here's why God is coming in judgment for them. And this list drags us all before the bar of God's courtroom and leaves us convicted. From the repeated emphasis on ungodliness, did you hear that refrain? Ungodly people in such an ungodly way doing ungodly things. We see how heinous these sins which we all commit, how heinous they truly are. But there's a very interesting feature of, of Jude's citation of First Enoch 1, 9. Um, I don't expect you all to include First Enoch in your regular reading. So I think this is something that I do have to highlight. Jude emphasizes that the Lord comes. But despite that, the original text of First Enoch referred more generically to God. And so what's happening here? Jude replaced this generic reference to God with the New Testament standard designation for Christ. Just like, as we saw in verse 5, he interpreted uh, Israel's rescue from Egypt in light of Christ. Jesus rescued a people from Egypt as an act of Christ's work to save God's people. So too, he also, so too, Jude also reread this Enoch prophecy in light of Christ with new clarity and precision. It's not merely God who comes to judge his enemies, but God the Son, the incarnate Lord. And there's a twofold significance to that. The first time, the first time that the Son came to earth, He came to set the captives free. 
He came to rescue us from this exact judgment that He will inflict upon everyone who does not believe when He comes again. When Christ came the first time, He personally went to the cross. And as He hung nailed to those beams, He endured the full wrath of God. He underwent every measure of penalty that is owed to all of us who break God's law. And He did so to take your place on the executioner's block. Christ was condemned for you. In my place condemned, He stood. If you trust in Christ, then Christian, you need to know that you are free from this condemnation. Jesus paid for your sin and earned your place in heaven. When Christ comes back, you will not bear the force of His judgment because He has already endured that for you to ensure that you have everlasting life with Him. Further, when Christ comes back to judge, Jude makes clear that it is to rescue His church. That's what hap- That's the force of this prophecy, is it not? It's not just that bad things happen to bad people. That's not the force of this. It's you're afflicted with false teachers, but Christ is coming to judge them. And so you will be free. There is hardship for the people of God in this age as we bear up under those who would pressure the church to distort grace and reject Christ. Maybe those pressures come from outside. Maybe from those who are overt rebels against the Lord. But maybe those pressures come from within. Like Jude addressed with those even claiming to be Christians who are leading the church astray. Either way, Christ will purge the church of all her troubles when He returns for us. Our redemption, our rescue will be complete. And it will be complete as Jesus frees us from all that troubles us. God has designated those who mar His church for condemnation. Verse 4. And He has destined for destruction those who would lead His people astray. Now that might seem a little bit disconnected from us. 
right? Since Jude delivers this prophecy to a church that isn't ours. And yet, by way of application, I mean, take note that we don't even know what church Jude addressed or where it was. It's not told to us. If you feel like our church is tucked away in the unknown nooks of London, we just find ourselves in the same position as this unknown congregation in the New Testament. And God issued a prophecy just for this unknown, unnamed church. And we don't know which one it was. And what we see in that is that even today, as was true then for them, remains true today for us, that God cares so richly for His people, His specific people, whether the world knows about you or not. As God cared, cares for that forgotten church, He cares for us here. As we work for the gospel in London, as we go through struggles and trials, and as we go through times of uncertainty, which we certainly face on various levels right now, we know, we know that God is for us. Christ has us in his heart as he intercedes for us now before the throne of God. And, and he will have your name on his lips when he comes to give the world to his people. Let's pray. Father God, we see in this passage how deeply your people matter to you. And that as you have destined those to destruction who would lead your people astray, we see that that is not only a demonstration of your justice against sin, but it is also a great act of kindness and a demonstration of your love for your people to free us from all that the sinful world has always inflicted upon us. We pray, even as we find comfort in that, that you protect your people, that you give us blessings by judging those who us astray. Still, God, we pray that there are innumerable in this city who belong to you, whom you will transition from wrath to grace. That right now, as Jude talked about those who are beloved in the Father, kept for Jesus Christ, who are called to be saints, call people to be saints, that if there are those without faith in our Savior right now, that it changes here today. You are the sovereign God. Call. 
and strengthen your people, knowing that whatever our size, you care. The ages may not remember London City Presbyterian Church, but Christ remembers London City Presbyterian Church. And what greater thing could we ask to have? Press that into our hearts today. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.